The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. We look into Alonso's strategic use of battery power, ask why several teams are having such big swings in performance from race to race, and answer your questions on sharing data, movable aero, and end plates. Welcome to another episode of the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. I'm your host, Ed Straw, but the real star of the show, of course, is Gary Anderson, who's been there, done that, bought the T-shirt in half a century in motorsport. Gary, welcome back. How are you doing? What are you up to at the moment? Yeah, I'm doing good. I've enjoyed uh, the Brazil race, to be honest, seeing a bit of a bit of difference there. Obviously, Max Verstappen came out on top, but that's what we've got to expect. But uh, great to see Lando Norris doing uh, doing well. You know, it was a nice it was a nice mix there, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, I think it was a good weekend. Um, sprint racing and and the and the real Grand Prix. It's it's very hard to put them together, I think, and and actually make it so that both are exciting. I think it ends up being, you know, the sprint race usually unfolds that the Grand Prix is going to be very like it because the sprint comes first. So, you know, you know the, the the sort of standard set, really, I suppose you might call it. But um, on top of that, I'm just getting ready to go to um, a, a 60th reunion at McLaren tomorrow night where there's a big a big do going on and apparently there's some 300-odd people coming. So um, it's been put together. It uh, sounds like quite a good event. So meet up with some of the old boys from... Uh, the McLaren Old Boys Club, as such, and uh, I think they're coming from all around the world to be uh, to uh, to be there. So, drivers, mechanics, engineers, whatever. So, I think it'll be quite a good evening um, just to see everybody again for the first time in many years. Yeah, and you were chief mechanic there, weren't you? Yeah, 77, 78, 79, and then I left at the beginning of eighty because um, I wanted to try something different and um, you know going to Ensign and, and sort of stepping up a little bit from being a, a mechanic was uh, quite important to me. So, um, yeah, it didn't really work out, and that's where Anson got started because of that. But, um, yeah, it was enjoyable years at McLaren. I mean, it was a sort of a downswing, I suppose, at McLaren, but it was really because of the upswing of, of ground effect cars. Um, but we um, we learned a lot during that period of ground effect cars, I have to say. Um, and that was important, I think. It's even important to now, because, you know, th- those days when the ground effect cars were first coming into play... It was a big learning curve because you you, know, you weren't really using wind tunnels to their to their uh, real extent, um, so a lot of it was gut feel, driver feedback, getting things done that made the car drivable for the driver. So you really were focusing on the driver's confidence driving a car that had huge huge amounts of downforce for its day. So um, yeah, I think the people around at that point in time, there was a big learning curve, and there's. Not many of us around now that were around at that point in time, I think you might say, but there, there's a few. So, uh, yeah, definitely they could help the situation quite a lot with uh, the problems we have with ground effect cars currently. Yeah, I was going to say, some of that learning curve they were redoing, I think, uh, uh, last year in, in particular. And it's perhaps no coincidence that Adrian Newey was one of those who was around in F1's first ground effect era and who had a big influence on the the current dominance car but anyway as usual we'll start off with a, a free choice of topic for you gary so what struck you from the brazilian grand prix weekend well i think it was a challenge um for for third really i mean you know we expected max verstappen to do what he did um i think london norris needs to be patted on the back for a great effort and he definitely came out of there you know if we expected max to win the race um, then Lando come out and he won his race. You know he be, he beat the rest of them, 
and he really wasn't, you know, the, the car isn't good enough to beat the Red Bull yet. But I think the battle with Alonso and Perez, uh, you know, we've seen for the last couple of races, um, Austin and, and uh, Mexico, that Aston had lost their way a little bit. And however, they were able to regroup. And that's what I sort of suggested they needed to do, just sit down and use the logic of where had they gone wrong, what point in time had they gone wrong and what had they done and try to step backwards. And they used Austin and, and um, Mexico as a little bit of a test bed. So then coming to uh, coming to Brazil, you know, from from day one, it was, you know, all, all guns firing. And to be honest, you know, the car was, was pretty decent. Yes, maybe qualifying third and fourth was a, a little bit lucky on the Saturday, but but still, you know, you take your luck when you can get it. They've had enough bad luck. So um, I think it was, it was justified in the end. Um, and Alonso's drive, I think, and the battle with Perez for the last whatever, you know, really was five laps, but probably 20 laps, just shows that, you know, the experience of a 42-year-old, you can't throw it away. You know, he, he, was, he has a lot left to think about what's going on. He's not just using all his efforts to drive the car. All his mental capacity is not being used up just turning the steering wheel. He's, he's got a lot left to sort of think about the whole situation and how to deploy the, you know, the electrical energy, you know, how to fight off the DRS run with Perez, where, where the corners that were important to him, he was exceptional in. And, um, you know, that, that's really, really important. And then, obviously, to get passed by, by Perez was, you know, I think he thought it was all over at that point in time. He said it so himself. But then he had one last hit at it, and, and he made it work. And that's that's the level that we know, you know, Alonso's at, as I always say, if you give a dog a bone, what do you expect it to do? He had a car in Brazil that, that was giving him confidence to drive. He could take it into turn four in the brakes and, uh, and get into the corner, even when he had to push it past its limits a bit, you know, in, the, in that last lap to get past Perez again. He was able to do that because he had the confidence that the car would give him back the feedback that he needed to react to the situation that was there, the instant situation that he was going to generate, that he was going to create himself. And um, that's where the good guys stand out. You know, that, that's really the exceptional part of being a top-line driver. More than anything else, it's just this true, sharp determination that you've got and the confidence to carry it out. You know, you need to, you need to know the feeling of your car is correct and you need to know what it's doing. It's going to be, you know, you're going to feel it and pick it up and understand it. And he did that and it's, it was exceptional. And for, uh, for Aston Martin, you know, to finish third and fifth, it was a a great recovery from both of them. And I think, you know, we've, we've all slated uh, Lance Stroll a bit over the time. But again, he showed whenever you have the car, it's it's possible to do it. He he probably needs a car a little bit more than Fernando Alonso, just from the fact that he's, you know, he's he's still relatively inexperienced at driving at the front. Um, so he probably needs the car to be a little bit better than, uh, than Fernando does. But still, both of them, exceptional race for Aston Martin and truly exceptional race from Fernando Alonso and I think it's worth stressing how challenging that equation is for a driver in Alonso's situation because obviously we talk about using the battery power and that kind of thing but obviously you can deploy over a lap twice the amount of energy from the battery that you can harvest so it becomes not just a, a kind of one lap strategy but it's a multi-lap strategy and obviously usually teams have their their kind of optimal running version for optimal lap time in a, in a race stint and then you can start altering that for when you're attacking or defending or whatever and you've got the, the push to pass and 
uh, effectively when you just deploy some some battery when you need it the overtake button but it's very easy to misuse that isn't it and actually for, to have a driver if you're sat there on the pit wall and you've got a driver out there who you know is kind of doing all those little calculations and working out that what you spend right now you can't then spend the next lap necessarily is hugely valuable isn't it because we know there are some drivers who don't really have a very good concept of if you spend that today you can't spend it tomorrow <laughs> and then they'll be like well we're out of battery I'm like, well it's not how it works so that that's got to be a great thing to have and a good example to younger drivers who perhaps because of the way everything works even in the junior formula now with the preparation they go through and that kind of thing and the engineering inputs there's a risk they almost become a little bit passive in that process some of them so great example from alonso from that regard as well yeah, it is. I mean, that's that's what really what the experienced guys are doing is is setting the example for the new guys, and I think it's one of those sort of situations where the the other formers, Formula Two, Formula Three, or whatever you like to call them, um, would benefit from having some type of a strategy that that allowed them to actually use their brain a little bit as to the same sort of thing, whether it be just extra RPM or you know a little bit more power or something, a, a sort of boost button, really. I suppose you might call it. We don't want to get into the hybrid package for f for f2 or f3 but you could do something where the, the, the cars all have a you know downturn of 20 or 30 horsepower and that, that 20 or 30 horsepower is available to you for x amount of times per lap a lot of formulas do that but you know formula 2 and formula 3 could do with it as a learning curve for formula 1 to do exactly the same thing as alonso was doing but the, you know the big thing for me is that you know if you if you got a good exit out of turn four which you could see alonso was was pretty decent at it then there is very little chance um, until you get to the, the last corner that somebody's going to actually pass you. You really got to be, you know, be on it. So during that period, Alonso would have been on full harvesting and, and just keeping a big eye on the mirrors and making sure that, that uh, Perez wasn't making a, you know, a do or die at him. So, you know, he had that area there to, to pick up as much energy as possible. And then out of the last corner, obviously, to get up the hill, you wanted to use it, but you also wanted to save a little bit for right at the end when uh, when, per- when uh, Perez would have been benefiting from the DRS. So it was a very intelligent drive. Um, and you could see him, you know, using slightly different lines, everything he could to make sure that he exited the corners, the important corners correctly. And the rest of the, the lap, you know, that infield section, was just about harvesting, keeping the car reasonably in the middle of the road, you know, but not wasting too much um, time because you couldn't let Perez close up on him before the last corner. So you needed it to be quick enough there, um, but you knew you didn't need all the all the power because they're just they're just throttle stabs. They're not really you know they're not really max power things. So you wouldn't need any of the battery energy through there. Just you know you had enough power really, I suppose, from the from the IC, ICE. So it's uh, yeah, as I say, it's just it's just the fact that somebody with that experience who has capacity left over to think about all that stuff, which we know Alonso does. You can hear him on the radio many times. I think that, um, you know, that's that's really what you pay them for. That's what you pay these guys for, the, the good guys. Even to this extent right now that, you know, Max will get himself into a bit of a, a bit of a state sometimes whenever he's under a bit of pressure. You can hear him on the radio, you know, the voice the voice gets a bit pitchy. Whereas Alonso's still, you know, fairly, fairly laid back about it all. So I think... Yeah, that that experience comes with time. It doesn't come with just winning races or being quick or any of that sort of stuff. It comes with time. And that's the important thing to make sure that um, you have a driver 
and if you can give him the car, he, you know, Alonso will bring home big points whenever he has the opportunity. And he's shown that, you know. I think he was as excited to be on the podium as as the team were to see him on the podium. You know, he'd just come through a couple of bad races and um, he was back there again with the big boys. So, end of the day, you know, congratulations to them all for, for really uh, running an exceptionally good race and understanding it. And again, it's, it's the same thing where, you know, being able to get past um, Lewis Hamilton and turn four at the restart, you know, and get into, into that position to race third. He knew that's how he could look after the tyres. He had to have clear air in front of him. He knew sort of he, he couldn't really keep up with Norris and, and Verstappen on, on a given day, but he knew he didn't want to get caught behind Lewis because, you know, then he would destroy his tyres. So, you know, he knew what he had to do and he went out, he went out and done it, which is, yeah, exceptional. Yeah, and there's one element of it that's very easy to overlook. He got to the point when he realised it was inevitable Perez was going to catch him and he didn't get sucked into spending too much of that energy staying out of reach so that he had the power when he was there. So it's all those little things and just thinking ahead and understanding where your optimum place to, to spend the resources you've got that's what makes him him so clever and even after the race it was perhaps no surprise spoke to Perez and he wasn't particularly annoyed about it because he no. recognised he'd been in a great battle he'd come close but I think he knew he'd just been outdone by a, a brilliant driver that day well finishing fourth by what 0.05 of a second is uh, is pretty close isn't it I mean I suppose if you know the start line had been 10 metres further down the road Perez would have got it if it had been you know 10 metres earlier then Alonso would have got it by a little bit more but that, that just shows you that the actual the the need the will for both of them getting out of that last corner just one little stab in the throttle one little snap of, of oversteer from either of them and it would have been history you know the, the race would have turned out to be nothing but they, they both did it and they both got out of there to be all to intents and purposes they went across the start line together you know forget about all, all the fact that there was 0.05 of a second yes that's what that's what ended up giving the points out but in effect, they went across the start finish line together. So it's um, it's one of those things of, you know, Perez was on the outside. I think he was on the outside. Um, if he'd been on the inside, you know, it would have been shorter for him. But Alonso just kept him on the outside, just kept running wide so that, he, you know, Alonso would have come out the last corner looking to merge to make sure he saw where Perez was and just kept ushering him that little bit, that little bit longer route, I suppose, around that long, long left-hander. And that, that's really what does it as well. Just that little bit extra, you just make that guy drive. His lap becomes two or three metres longer than the the other route. So, um, yeah, makes a big difference. But as I say, that's the difference in somebody that's got that capacity left over after driving the car flat out for, um, or as flat out as you can these days, for uh, for that many laps, 71 laps, and still having that capacity right to the checkered flag to make sure that he was his, uh, the guy he was trying to beat was you know, being made to do it the, the the harder way, I suppose you might call it. And a great example, this is a fusion of humans and technology, isn't it? And the way he dealt with that and thought about it and manipulated the situation, technically it almost just shows what F1 is all about. And uh, yeah, just great to see Alonso still able to do that kind of thing, even in his fifth decade now. Yep, yep, nice. Great job, great job. Well, our main topic today is looking at the big performance swings that we've seen over the course of the season. And in fact, we've seen this throughout this rule set since it was introduced last season, haven't we, Gary? 
from race to race. You're never quite sure where teams are going to be. You have some idea of the strengths and weaknesses, but you have surprises. Brazil, we had Aston Martin back on the podium after two pretty bad races in Austin and Mexico. Mercedes, we were expecting to be a good podium threat, but they ended up nowhere, really struggled in the race. On a basic level, why do you think we see such big performance swings from weekend to weekend, particularly in that group behind Red Bull that we're focusing on so much? Well, I think we can even sort of filter that down a bit more. We see it from session to session, I think. Um, you know, I think if you look at Mexico as an example, um, f- even Ferrari didn't expect to happen what happened to them with two cars, you know, in that uh, uh, first run in, in Q3 to be as good as they were. They just they were just astounding. Even whenever they went out for the second run, they, they couldn't better that time. So for whatever reason it suddenly comes to you know i i put a lot of emphasis into the tires and it's it's one of these sort of things where it's easy to talk about and hard to do but you know let's let's deal with the cars first of all currently they are very critical to a millimeter ride out here and there i mean even less than a millimeter even when we had the flat bottoms cars you could you could alter the balance of the car quite dramatically with you know half a millimeter front ride height a millimetre at the most really but half a millimetre would have a, a, a significant influence on the on the car's balance and a millimetre and a half two millimetres on the rear would have a significant influence and that, that you know as the temperature rises or cools down the car you can you know the, the car can change by that much and I think it's even more critical now because of the ground effect back in the in the flat bottom days we were developing um, you know 25-30% of the, of the downforce from the underfloor and now developing sort of 60, 65% of the downforce of the underfloor. So, you know, the underfloor is a really critical component, and the fact it runs close to the ground, it means it's an even more critical component. So, you know, you need to be very, very careful with that, and, and obviously getting the right setup from race to race is, is a big thing. Um, that's one of the situations where I think, um, you know, we, we had this situation in, in, uh, in Austin where um, Hamilton and Leclerc both got disqualified after the race for the plank wear. Now, you know, at the end of the day, the ride heights are adjustable. You can start the car high and lower it as you can, as best you can within the time you've got to to get the best out of the car, but knowing that you're safe if you ever get caught out with time and not able to optimise the car, but knowing you'll also be slower. So the tendency is to, to arrive at a track with the car as best possible for performance. And sometimes you get caught out with that. Obviously, in, in Austin, the Mercedes performance was pretty good. Um, but at the end of the day, they got caught out because the car was probably too low over the whole weekend. So they got caught out because of plank wear. Um, it's one of those sort of situations, I think, you know, the, the, the underfloor is so critical that you really have... The ride height is probably the, one of the most... The ride height and the stiffness of the car is probably one of the most important things uh, from race to race. And that's why I think we see a big change in it. Now, as you say, if you look at Red Bull, they seem to be able to pop up at most weekends, sprint weekends or race weekends and and do a pretty a pretty commendable job. You know, they they they're the standard I think as far as um obviously winning races is concerned, pole positions is concerned, but also as far as stability is concerned. They're they very, very seldom have a bad weekend. Um they did I think it was Singapore where it went a bit wrong for them. You know, they didn't have a great weekend, but at the end of the day um, one out of what was it now we've had 20 races is not too bad but then if we come to the, just the fact that from session to session the cars are a bit different 
I think the tires have got a big a big part of that to play, and it, it's not just the tire; it's how you treat the tire, it's how you go about getting the tire warm in the blankets and at the time it's in the blankets and how many times you've heated it. All of those situations where you heat the blankets up, you know, in a way hardens the tires. So if I look at, at Ferrari, if I was doing a bit of an analysis on it and I look at Ferrari in Mexico, I'd say their first set of tires for for Q3 was putting the blankets at the right time. They took them out of the blankets at the right time whenever the tires had just reached the temperature they wanted them to be at, they put them in the car and they went out and the car the car worked well. I would say that the second set of tires went in the blankets probably at the same time and they sat in the blankets at that temperature for that extra 10 minutes or whatever it be before they put them in the car. And that definitely makes the tire into a, it hardens the compound of the tire. You know, the ideal thing is to be catching the tire when the temperature is on the rise not that it's got to there and sat there for a while. And again, you know, we've seen the fact that somebody doesn't get as much out of a new tyre as it did out of a, you know, the first set, or that they don't get as much out of a new tyre from a used soft tyre to, to a new soft tyre. And that's really because the, you know, they've, the, the different the tyres have come in differently um, as far as the temperature that they've been heated up to, when you left the pits, how much you let them cool down, did you drive straight out and just get on them immediately. So I think... The preparation of the tyre, um, I would be pushing pretty hard. I'd be focusing really, really hard on making sure the tyre never sat there at the temperature it should be for very long. I would le- le- like to see as you just taking the tyre out of the blanket as the temperature still climbing that last few degrees. Um, so that means that you're going to end up with the pressure being a little bit higher in the tyre because you you know the, the pressure has to be at a minimum before you take it out of the blankets as such. And if you can let the tyre sit in there and be hot for a little bit longer, the pressure will go up. So effectively, you can ha- you can have a lower pressure in the tyre because as you let it cool down, it'll drop down more. But if you're bringing the, the temperature up and trying to catch the tyre just within that last five degrees of heating, then you need to start the pressures a little bit higher. You're probably only talking one PSI or something because the, t- the pressure will be catching up as the temperature gets there. So the combination of those two, I think, are very important, but for me, the compound and not overcooking the compound is what makes it go from session to session, and maybe even you know a little bit of race meeting to race meeting, but definitely session to session. Yeah, and track temperature can be very very difficult as well. We saw in Mexico, the track temperature was very sensitive to the ambient temperature, so you weren't getting a, a linear relationship. It's not like the ambient goes down one degree and the track goes down one degree. It was much more than that, so that makes it a very difficult window to uh, shoot at, but. The really interesting case study, I guess, from Brazil was Mercedes, wasn't it? Unpredictable car. It could be tricky from lap to lap, as Hamilton indicated. Do you think that that exposes some gap in the understanding of Mercedes? They admitted they ran slightly high. They thought there was some other mechanical problem, maybe going on a mechanical setup issue. But do you think it exposes a gap in their knowledge that's quite a big concern, given that's the knowledge that's making the 24 car? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I was quite surprised really at their how they fell backwards in the race, uh, both races, to be honest, the sprint and the uh, and the Grand Prix. It was more dramatic than at the beginning of the year because they were the other way around at the beginning of the year. They they weren't super fast at the beginning of the year, but they were um, they were able to pull a good race out of it. You know, normally the tire degradation was was in in a reasonable position relative to the others. 
So they were able to usually pull out a decent result out of a race. But uh, this weekend in Brazil, for some reason, it all went wrong. And I think, you know, you're right, probably. They did go to Brazil with the car a bit higher, um, just from the fact of Austin and, you know, the, the problems they had in Austin with the plank wear. And they were probably doing what I've suggested. You know, you need to start a bit higher, and then you know, if you get time, you get you get the car as low as you can. But you make sure you keep an eye on the plank wear. Um, but because it was a sprint weekend, that, that sort of left them vulnerable a little bit. Because you know, whereas in Austin they were they were vulnerable because they couldn't get the car high enough, or they couldn't get time to get the car high enough to stop the plank wear, because it was a sprint weekend. Then come the um, Come uh, Brazil, you know the opposite way around. So you you will end up that way. But I don't quite relate that problem to Lewis Hamilton saying the car is different from lap to lap and corner to corner. Um, that's not really what happens there. Usually, if the car's a little bit high, you just got a little bit less grip. You might not be quite as quick. Yes, the tire degradation or the tire overheating could become worse. But I don't I don't believe it changes from corner to corner. You know, most of the drivers know whenever they've overheated the rear tires a little bit even just in that and in the, in the immediate battle they know this is a bit near the limit you know we're just working this thing a little bit hard so we need to back it off a little bit but on top of that then you know you had the mercedes obviously for uh, for hamilton he he never really had a battle with anybody he was always there's always a good gap in front of him so he was okay but when george russell got anywhere near um to the back of Hamilton, then suddenly the overheating comes, and you can see him driving the other side of the track. All those things mount up. You know, if you if you listen to MotoGP, they they talk about their their, their front tire overheating whenever they they uh, follow another bike. It's massively different from whenever they're leading a race. And the same thing happens in F1. You know, there's a huge amount of hot air coming out the back of those cars. So never mind the turbulence. You're you know all that hot air is meaning that you've got less downforce. Your car's sliding around a bit more. But also the fact the ambient temperature that you're driving through when you're close to somebody is, is higher than the, than the ambient temperature. So everything's a negative. And, you know, for a team like Mercedes to really always have this cooling battle, it seems very strange to me that they don't sort of put themselves on the safe side for once and just try to just get themselves stability. Stability is where you realise where you really are. You know, when you can... When you can qualify 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, whatever, but you can do it week in, week out, you know where you are. You know what you got to find. And when you can finish races where you start the great race at, then that's, again, you know that you got a car that's not over-degrading the tyres. So they haven't put themselves in that position. they put themselves in a position where, again, they're a team that wants to win. they put themselves in a position where they're trying to win with a car that's not capable and that's that is reflecting in their their uh, consistency of performance as well. So, I think they need to sit back a little bit. And I'm sure this week there's been a, a few heavy going meetings in Brackley. I'm surprised I haven't heard some of the voices from where I live at because I'm not that far from Brackley. But I'm sure there's a bit of shouting going on here and there. They appear they can appear on TV to be all calm and cool about it all and happy enough with it all. But that's not the way it is, you know. When, in reality, when the door gets closed in that office, there'll be a lot of harsh words said. And obviously, the reason these these cars are so difficult, as you mentioned, they're very ride height sensitive. And then you've got the added challenge of if you have a circuit with a wide range of corner speed profiles, that makes it harder to set up. And good performance is all about maximising that downforce throughout the ride height range, which has been the the key to to do this. What's sort of the key to getting the right performance window? Is it having the right sort of mechanical 
setup and the control of that aero it's that interaction i guess that's absolutely key to having a car that can work across a a broad range of things and that will be consistent from circuit to circuit yeah i mean it's always been difficult to get the the balance between the mechanical setup and the aerodynamic setup right but you know i think the teams learn a lot from simulation so at the end of the day you have basically a a characteristic of these cars where it wants to understeer in in lower and medium speed corners and then if you have a stable center pressure on the car um, it wants to oversteer in high speed corners your mechanical sort of setup really you know you have to work it in harmony with the tires you can't change the tires you know you you, one psi on the tire is like 50 pounds spring stiffness vertical stiffness change Um, so the tires the pressures are defined so that that defines the stiffness of the tyre. So if you have a super soft car, you know, all this, the, the car's doing all the moving, but basically the platform is, is doing a lot of moving and you don't want that with an aerodynamic, uh, a ground effect aerodynamic car. So you end up running the car stiffer. If you're on it too stiff, then the tyre's doing all the work. So you, you can heat the tyre up quicker, but the degradation gets worse. Um, so it's a combination between the mechanical setup and the aerodynamic setup. And basically, you know, if, if as I say, you want the car to to get the best balance possible because it's not just downforce downforce is just a loose word that's the, the amount of grip you have but you need the car balance the balance is what gives the driver confidence so if you get the car as well balanced as you can you want to be on the borderline of having understeer in the medium and low speed corners but the center of pressure needs to move rearward at high speed so the, the rear end of the car is stable because the last thing you need going into that turn six i think they called it in brazil that right hander there was a car that the, the rear end was nervous, so you, you know, you end up just in the barrier, because it's one of these cars with a, one of these corners where you come up a hill, the car gets a bit lighter, the road flattens out a bit, and so everything's going against you in that corner. So you need a car that's got a stable rear end for those faster corners. So really, the mechanical balance, the mechanical setup should come from your analysis of the tire stiffnesses and and the amount of movement that the car can cope with. And then you have to you have to do make sure the aerodynamics um, sort of bandages in on top of that all. You can't you can't just have looks. We can find another ten percent more downforce, but the centre of pressure is moving forward on the car at, at speed. And if you have that, you have a nightmare of a car. So you've got to be really really sort of careful and read between the lines and make sure the centre of pressure of the car is moving in the right direction to suit the mechanical setup you got. And and you can't just make the car solid as I say. It just doesn't work that way. You can't ride the curbs, you can't ride the bumps, it's horrible under braking, you know, all that sort of stuff. So you need to sort of start with the, pri- the, the, the prime mover of the mechanical setup and then try and get the aerodynamics to work with that amount of car movement you're going to do with that difference in load from the aerodynamics. So, you know, it's a chicken and egg. Can Mercedes just shrug off into Lagos and think, oh, it's just an outlier, the general trend's good? Or is that the kind of thing that's when you make almost fatal mistakes? Well, I think, I think it's interesting, again, looking at the other teams, you have to say that Aston Martin did, did had two races where they ended up experimenting and pit-laying starts because of changing stuff on the car, or trying to organize, trying to sort out what, where they'd gone wrong at. I never, I never quite see Mercedes doing that. I never quite see them, see them putting a race meeting into testing research. They are either, as they were in Austin and in Mexico, very pleased with their performance. Uh, Hamilton finished, theoretically finished second in both those races. Um, 
and then you go they go to Brazil and it's a nightmare. So you know, whenever you see Toto after the wrist saying it was just a horrible weekend, it's not because they actually tried to find a solution to their problem um, and, and give up the weekend and try to sort of um, put it into experiment a little bit. They just were bad. So it's one of those things where I think it would be very difficult to write off Brazil for them because they're, they, didn't, they didn't write it off in their own mind. They, 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 they wanted it to work. Somehow they wanted it to work and they expected some miracle to come out of it. Um, but it didn't happen. So they, they come away from Brazil just, I would say, for, with a, a lot more confusion than they, than they went there with because I think they expected to do reasonably well. George Russell won last year there in the sprint race. Um, so at the end of the day, they, you know, they, they expected uh, Brazil to work towards them. They had a good plan, but the good plan didn't work. So at the end of the day, they'll have come away from there more confused than when they went. And that's bad. The two races to go in the end of, to the end of the season, Vegas being a whole new track. I mean, anything could happen there. They could have two cars in the front row um, because nobody has run there. So it's all about adaption, setup, simulation, reaction, all that sort of stuff. So don't count anybody out, I don't think, in Vegas because of it being a new track. But um, you know, then you go to Abu Dhabi. And again, you know, you, you, you need to sort of learn why you've made those mistakes because you're going into a long winter, a long hard winter with the 2024 car. You know, there's, there's, there's decisions being made now for those cars because you don't make the chassis, you know, just by snapping your fingers. They take time. They don't make the gearbox casing and the, the, the carbon casing around it. And, you know, they take time. So all that suspension geometry stuff that we see so different on the Red Bull, push rod rear, you know, the pull rod front, um, all that stuff is, is necessary to commit to now even before now probably um, and they are big decisions so they're making those big decisions at a time whenever their racing is in turmoil and um, so getting confidence as a decision maker getting confidence is, is pretty tough You're listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence as the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. Inevitably, we've had some listener questions about uh, the Mercedes situation and we'll tackle one now before the question section because it fits in. This one comes from Mike Listmeyer, which is very much related to the Mercedes struggles. He says, after the Friday practice session at the Mexican Grand Prix, I noticed that George Russell was quoted as saying he and Lewis tried different setup directions on Friday and both were not ideal. So my question has two parts. One, do George and Lewis have similar styles and preferences? And two, are Mercedes still a bit lost in terms of understanding how to extract consistent performances from this year's car setup race to race if so is this still concerning for next year's direction as we wind down another underwhelming year for the team obviously we've covered some of that but but what what do you make of that looking even beyond interlagos do you, do you see there's a trend there and what do you make of the the two drivers demands um i think every driver will always have a bit of a different demand i remember going back to when i was uh, doing stuff for the bbc i was at monaco and um it was one of those sort of things where um, Nico Rosberg and, and Hamilton were driving, and I wanted to watch a couple of a couple of areas um, really into the chicane at the end of the tunnel there, 
And, you know, Lewis is one of, at that time was one of those drivers where he came into the corner and it was all, everything was calm. You know, steering wheel movement, everything was calm in the car. Turned to end, turned to end the right amount. Just, that was it, sat there and waited with it and then carried on around the corner. Whereas Nico Rosberg was coming in and, you know, everything was reaction. He was reacting to every movement the car had. Um, you know, every, the, the steering wheel was just from you know a bit more lot because he had a little bit understeer to a bit more to a bit of opposite lot because the car snapped a bit in the rear, so they were two different drivers completely in the same car doing more or less the same job. So you'll always get a different characteristic. When we when I had Barrichello and Eddie Irvine driving um, for Jordan, you know Rubens is one of these you know drivers fingertip drivers. He just he's so calm, cool, and collected about it all. Um, whereas um, whereas uh, Eddie was was more of the white knuckle driver, you know, real grip on the steering wheel, just muscle it. And, and again, the end result was the same. So, you know, lap time-wise, they're, they're both were capable of it. But at the end of the day, you know, you'll always get a different driver. And I think George Russell has probably come from, from Williams from a car that was never that good, you know, and was willing to accept the car not being that good. Whereas Lewis has come from an era of having a very good car, winning a lot of races and a lot of championships. So I think Lewis, I think it's hard to sort of, it's hard to sort of compare the two of them because they're coming at it from a completely different angle. Never mind their driving characteristics. It was, uh, it was, it's more about the fact that, um, you know, the different angle they're coming into the racing car from. George is still happy enough to drive something that's not quite right and just live with it a little bit. But Lewis, I think, knows what he wants to make the car better um, and and complains about it. So I think just they are different as drivers, but they're coming at it from a very different angle, a very different experience. Let's move on to Aston Martin because they obviously took a big leap forward in Brazil. Have you experienced that kind of thing before where you're nowhere and suddenly back up front and what do you make of all the stuff about them talking about doing R&D in public and rolling back on some of the developments they had a bit of a mix and match package in Interlagos yeah I mean they, they, um, that's the way you have to do it to be honest nowadays with, with no with no testing available and we know that these ground effect cars every team in the pit lane was surprised last year that these you know their simulation, all the work they've done over the winter of tw- before 2022 with the new cars. None of that made any sense. You know, none of them at the beginning of 2022 expected the level of porpoising that they had, whether you know the, the underflow was was stalling. Everybody had gone for lots and lots of downforce, but they, you know they suffered the problems. So I think at the end of the day, you know, with the regulations the way they are, with no testing, um, you've got to test somewhere, and sometimes you've got to write off a little bit to to get there. Am I surprised that they made it? You know, they made the step so good for Brazil. Yes, I am surprised. I think the weekend played out to them a little bit because, you know, a few others weren't weren't as good as they should have been. I think the only teams you could say were were right there were were really Red Bull and and to a certain extent McLaren, and the others seemed to trip up over themselves here and there for the weekend. And that you know that's maybe the sprint race situation. Obviously, we didn't see what ha- could happen with Leclerc whenever his car had a failure on the warm-up lap. Um, but if it's relative to Saints, you know, Saints had a pretty sort of non-eventful weekend, I suppose you might call it. But um, I think Aston put the homework in. Whenever they did bring their developments into play, sort of the middle of the year or a little bit later, they they spent a few races not actually believing they were in, in trouble. Um, 
and they they kept on sort of bringing in the odd development part based around that that package and i think that they, you know they dug a hole deeper and deeper and deeper for themselves and they got to a point where they themselves then thought hang on a minute or two this isn't right something going on here um we need to look at this a bit deeper and they, and they did spend austin and, and mexico you know buying into the fact that you're not going to fix it if you don't look at where it's coming from you know i've always said one of these things is if you don't recognize your problem then, you, then it's very hard to fix so they they bought into that um again as i say i'm surprised that they they were able to put together from the, the package of bits that they have a car that performed as it did in in brazil maybe that's a one-off maybe it was just lucky all that sort of stuff we'll have to wait and see um but I think, you know, what we saw from Alonso's reaction and um, uh, Lance Stroll's is that the you know, the car went from being a car that was like the Mercedes, hard to drive, to a car that was good to drive. And that's the important thing. And and so I think, you know, they, they bought into the fact they needed to do a bit of research. They did that bit of research and they came up with a package out of all the bits they have to, to, to make the car perform very well. Again, two races to go in the season. Let's see if they can keep that up. And we should talk about Red Bull because they've been consistent just that one bad weekend in Singapore. Do you think that car really is as consistent and reliable as as it looks or is there an element to which the fact that on a good day they're well ahead and on a bad day they're a bit ahead means that they're slightly less prone to losing positions, if you like, to that variability? Or do they just understand the car better, have a better platform, have better simulation and are just ahead and therefore able to get the performance out of the car dependably? Well, it sort of depends really, I think, whether you look at um, Red Bull or you look at Max Verstappen. You know, if you look at Sergio Perez, who's driving theoretically an identical car, he's up and down like a yo-yo like the rest of them are. Um, so then, And probably even worse. So in the same car, you know, which I'm sure they have at point at points in, in time, had the same setup, the same level of, you know, everything. Um, he hasn't had the by any point near the same success as, as Max Verstappen has. So I think, you know, Max is just in a different league as far as his confidence in himself. And I keep we're using this word confidence, and that's what a driver has to have. No matter what car you're in, you have to have confidence. And, you know, if you talk to Alex Albon whenever he's had a good run, it's just the car gave him confidence. So at at the end of the day, I think the Red Bull is obviously a very, very good package. Um, It's developed and its development direction is probably what Max wants, and rightly so, from the the success he brings the team. Um, And maybe that's where Sergio gets left behind a little bit. But still, at the end of the day, you know, on, on a, whenever they both have a very good day, I think you're seeing Max being three tenths probably better than than uh, than Sergio is. So it's not all car; it's a package that creates. It's been created around Max Verstappen being able to do the job. It's it's not all just Adrian Newey. It's a team of people. You know, Adrian wasn't at the last race in Brazil. So at the end of the day, the the people at the track can can cope without Adrian being there. Um, I'm sure he's in contact, but still they can cope without him being there. So the whole structure of the team is good enough to carry itself forward. But that structure of the team does include that that bloke driving it. And, you know, Max is exceptional. So at the end of the day, I think you've got to give a lot of credit to him, not just to Red Bull. Um, they've created a, a tool that he, he, he likes to use and he has fun using it. 
But still, at the end of the day, Max is is an arm and a leg ahead of you know Sergio Perez with all the best will in the world. You know Sergio's a very good little driver, but he isn't going to go out there and and win you know three consecutive world championships or races the way Max has done. So it's it's not nothing wrong with Sergio. He's just one of the other drivers that's there. And as a final point on this. Obviously, we talk about this consistency, etc. Do you think there's been a necessity for teams to change the way they evaluate and do their aero testing and that kind of thing? Obviously, in the past we talked about how aero testing moved to being more kind of transient with lock-on and that kind of thing. But now with these being so super dependent on ride height and the interaction with the mechanical platform, does that mean that teams will have had to evolve the way they're evaluating stuff at the testing stage and perhaps the most successful teams are the ones that are doing that more well it's always going to be a thing that where consistency is is um the most important thing you know at the end of the day you can have much more downforce than a lot of these cars but it would be very peaky and very hard to use and i think daniel ricardo made a um a good comment and i, I, I kept it here because i think it's good i, I just like to read it as far as that that comment's concerned as drivers will complain about a lot of things, we want traction, we want this, we want that. But if you can have that confidence in the corner entry, that's where it all starts. If you get the entry right, it, it helps the mid-corner, helps the exit. That kind of confidence I've had turning the car into the corner has been really important. So it's one of those things that's I always keep saying about it. You arrive down the end of the street, you stand on the brake pedal, you get a feeling of the stability of the car when you hit the brake pedal. You know, you can for a driver he can feel the rear being a bit light, or he can feel that the you know the front's a bit dead, or he can feel that. And when he turns the steering wheel, that's the first reaction to the the the, the feedback of the car, that consistency. And if the car does what he wants it to do, if it understeers a little bit, he puts more steering lock on it, and it understeers less. Um, when he gets on the power, you know, if he can feel the rear just moving that millimeter two millimeters then that's all good but if he doesn't feel the first 10 millimeters of movement then before you know it you get a snap over steer so the the feedback is the consistency the feedback is what gives the driver that that confidence um so i you know any car i've ever built if the car has been good it's been caused the driver the driver felt confident in it consistency was there in the in the platform it did more or less the same things in all the corners. You know, the driver will know he's going to get that low-speed corner and it's very easy to to um, over-steering, uh, apply more steering lock than you need and, and go past the slip angle of the tyre and, and create a lot of understeer. Um, so you have, you have to drive within a lot of things on the car. But the, the car has to give the feedback and that comes from the consistency. And, you know, you, you need to have that. Otherwise, the driver can't exploit his talents. So what's the point if... You know, you hire a driver, pay him loads of money, and you and you hamper him. Um, there's, there's many drivers out there, like Jensen Button. You know, he didn't like a car that um, he liked a car that he could carry speed through the corner. He needed a, a car that was well balanced for longer. A lot of drivers arrive at the corner, stand on the brakes, turn the corner car, and get on the throttle again. Whereas Jensen liked to carry speed through the corner. Kimi Räikkönen just couldn't drive with understeer. He needed the car to be, you know, the car to oversteer that a little bit. But at the end of the day, you know, the the drivers will always want a little bit of a little bit of what they want from the car. But the most important thing is that that it's consistent through the lap. 
even if they know that these low-speed corners, the car is going to undershare a little bit. And even if they know in the high-speed corners, the car will be you know, feeling like the rear ends light. It needs to be that every corner, every lap. And then you're okay. It's just getting that consistency is important. Yeah, and I think this is all stuff that teams are grappling very much with as they try to improve under these current regulations. And it's creating challenges both at the track and at the factory, which is what's making these regulations so fascinating. If you're listening to this podcast, you understand the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, please send us a question to answer on a future episode of this podcast. It can be on absolutely anything at all, as long as it's at least tangentially tech-related. It can be a simple question, a complicated question. Gary is up for all of them. You can send a written email to podcasts at race.com, or if you prefer, record a voice note and send it to us, making sure to tell us who you are that we can play on the show. We've got a nice set of questions this week, so we'll dive into them. The first comes from Christian, who says, Hi, I am a short-time F1 fan who came for the drama in the TV series but stayed for the tech, which I've found to be the really fascinating part of F1. Your podcast really brings a lot of interesting knowledge on the tech side. I have a question for you. As much fun as it is watching Red Bull win every race, and I'm sure watching Mercedes dominate in their heyday, I'm wondering if new rules could be introduced forcing teams to share more of their design data, like sharing detailed drawings of both internal and external parts, as well as maybe test data and wind tunnel results. If this was maybe shared halfway through the season, it would still allow the winning team to stay ahead for that season, but would allow closer competition for the following year and maybe shorten these dominant streaks of certain teams. Do you think F1 would benefit from such a scheme and what kind of data would be suitable to share? Um, it's one of these things where the team is more than what you see. You know, the team is a structure behind the scenes. And um, A1 had that sort of policy, whereas where on, a, on a Sunday night after the Grand Prix, after the race, you you would share the data with the other teams so they'd see where you were you know, faster. It, but it didn't, it didn't really change the fact that you had a group of people because that group of people are trying to get the best out of their product. You know, the the Red Bull product and how they run it, the, the vertical stiffness, the roll stiffness, the ride heights they're running, how the underfloor works, how the fuser works, how their DRS works. You know, that's all different from, let's say, Haas. So at the end of the day, you can't just look at the data and say, oh, look at that, you know. Their car moves 10 millimeters from from 100 kilometers an hour to 300 kilometers an hour or whatever. Um Let's put the springs on that allows us to move ten millimeters during that per- that period of downforce. Um, so I don't think you can copy the data. What what you know? I genuinely would like. And we're talking about data here. What I genuinely would like to see is the fact that the teams only get what you might call safety data and reliability data um, during the race weekend, and that on Sunday night you can have all the data yourself. You can have all the data from your performance stuff. So you're you're. I don't think you're running blind. I suppose the best way to call it, the driver's calling the shots. And that's like stepping back in time, I suppose. It doesn't help the other teams, because I don't think you can help the other teams. Every team is different in what it what it's trying to achieve from its car. Um, if you were to you know, hand out drawings of the underfloor from Red Bull to, to um, Mercedes, for example, I'm sure the Mercedes engineers there would have a better idea, you know, as to changing it a bit because of what they've done in the past. That's always the thing. A direct black and white copy will never really happen. That, that's the problem. You're always compromising something. 
a little bit or you, you come up with a better idea for something. You'll always do that. You will never, ever just black and white copy another car. You'll you'll use your past experience to develop it a little bit. But but again, as I say, the data wouldn't really help you. The teams have the data from other cars in the fact that they get so much GPS data. They know the acceleration of the car. They know where the, the other cars are deploying their their uh, battery energy. Um, they know the speed down the straights. They know you know the braking distances. They know when they get on full throttle. They know when they get on power throttle. All that stuff is all there from from GPS data. So you can see where the other cars faster than yours, and you know what area to focus on to make your car better in that area. So I don't I don't think it would be a benefit to any team really to do that. Um, I think it's better to let the teams stand on their own two feet because that's what you got to do. You've got to build a structure within your group of people that can stand on its own two feet and react to a given set of regulations. And the next question comes from Orlando Rodriguez, who says, As a devoted listener from Australia, I admire your insights on Formula One's design philosophy. I'm fascinated by the technical side of the sport and its potential for innovation. Recent discussions about flexible front wings and Red Bull's inventive DRS approach got me thinking about the future of aerodynamics in F1. Could revisiting the ban on movable aerodynamic aids improve efficiency and reduce political manoeuvring? Is safety a concern or a matter of tradition? I've also been following DARPA's Crane programme, exploring active flow control for virtual control surfaces should f1 consider similar innovations if not what about reintroducing active suspension systems for ride height control to enhance aerodynamic stability and performance your insights on these topics given your unique perspectives would be greatly appreciated thanks for your time and engaging podcasts lots to get into there gary yeah lots i think i'll start at the at the at the, at the back end of it first the the active suspension systems and i think you answer it yourself there um what about active, reintroducing active suspension systems for ride height control to enhance aerodynamic stability and performance? Um, don't disagree. It would enhance aerodynamic stability and performance, for sure. But why do you put something else in the car to bandage a problem that you've generated yourself in your aerodynamic stability and, uh, and performance? You know, if we look at the cars we've got now, and again, we have to po- focus on Red Bull. They have got a car that's aerodynamically stable. It produces good downforce. Um, its performance is pretty good. One lap, 10 laps, 20 laps, 30 laps. You know, the performance overall is a package. And that's created from the same set of regulations as everybody has. So why would you want to generate, put something on the car that that will change for for everybody? You know, Red Bull for sure will exploit an active suspension better than, you know, let's say Haas or or Alfa, Alfa Romeo or, you know, Williams or whatever. So you just create a bigger problem. I think what we have now is you've got a set of regulations to create a set of aerodynamic problems and those aerodynamic problems should be sorted out aerodynamically and, and leave it alone. A lot of people want active suspension back, but I, I think it just creates another set of unknowns for everybody. So going back up again and... Um, to the beginning of the question, looking at the movable aerodynamic aids, there is a plan for some more movable aerodynamic aids for the future. I, again, am not a big believer in that because, uh, um, you know, we saw at the beginning of the year whenever everybody was complaining about how powerful the Red Bull DRS was. You know, that was a movable aerodynamic device. But Red Bull took it a bit further in the fact that, you know, I, I suggested quite early on in the season that, their rear wing affected the beam wing, which affected the diffuser. So they they had a, a three-element DRS as such, a three-element stole. 
Um, that was refuted by a few people, but at the end of the day, I think everybody's headed that way now. They've got more powerful beam wings. That beam wing relies on the top wing to work, and that beam wing works the diffuser. So at the end of the day, movable aerodynamics are, again, are, are okay. They're a little bit of a bandage on a, on a given problem. What are they there for? If they're there to, to generate the balance of the car that you want to keep the centre of pressure stable and keep the balance correct, then they need to be sort of active aerodynamics where they're, they're reading the, the, the pressures, the centre of pressure of the car and, and keeping it stable. But again, it's an aerodynamic problem. So <clears throat> that allows you to go off and build cars that are aerodynamically unstable. Um, and then the, the bandage on top of it is the stability of the aerodynamics is generated by the fact that they're, they're active aerodynamics. And I don't think that's right. I think the regulations set a set of problems for every team and it's every team's problem to solve them within that set of regulations and not just keep changing the regulations to suit the fact that some teams are having problems because they'll still have problems. They'll still be the same problem, just coming from a different direction. As far as um, DARPA and crane programs concerned, I mean, it's, it's a bit like the blown exhaust. It's, it's uh, the Kawanda effect. You know, By blowing flow through a certain wing section, you'll make that wing section work uh, more so you can change the direction of the plane or you can again move the center of pressure it's just you know we had the tool of blowing the exhausts and we were they were using them in the diffuser many you know for many many years the exhaust pipes coming into the diffuser was a uh, very 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 powerful if you got it right and it was an important thing where you could you could drive with it you know whenever the car was was wanting to oversteer a little bit you had to get back on the throttle um so then the engines got to the point where you know you were keeping the throttle open the, the engine was working a bit like a compressor and um, you're firing the, the, the uh, ignition but very late in the stroke so you weren't getting power from it but you were getting exhaust gas uh, flow so um, it all happened and then again the same the same deal you know whenever the, the the exhaust pipes weren't allowed to be in the diffuser anymore then clever people went and blew them in around the, uh, the, the rear brake duct and created downforce more downforce from that area by by the Kawanda effect of getting that gas to flow onto a surface and creating downforce because you're you're creating a lower pressure underneath it because the air's travelling faster. So it's it's been there, it's been done. It isn't to the same level as as, as this crane program by any means, but it's you know the the a Formula One car has has two you know two main components: front downforce and rear downforce. How you generate that? Some of it's from the front wing, some of it's from the rear front wing. And the bigger percentages from the underfloor, so it's all possible. But you have to generate that that airflow from something. So you know you, you may have to put compressors on the car, and we've seen all that stuff. Whenever we go back to Mercedes with the with the front wing they had um, years ago, when Ross Brown was there, where they you know they blew the front wing to to try to sort of create that that type of situation. The same with the rear wing when we had the the driver holding his hand over the hole to stop the airflow going to the rear wing um, and then you could open the hole up and let that airflow escape so it's all been done in one way or another and it all does function to a certain level but again from my point of view a set of regulations is a set of regulations no matter what they are what they allow you to do there's still a set of regulations and there still will be a team that exploits them better than another team that's what it's all about you know so no matter how, how much you change, you'll always get a team that's dominant. It won't just work for the guys down the back of the grid. It will work for everybody. 
And our final question comes from Michael Strachan, who says, I'm a fan of the podcast. With a background that includes engineering, race engineering in GT cars and race driving in both GT cars and latterly stock cars, your podcast sits at the absolute apex of my interests. With Charles Leclerc being happy with the balance of the Ferrari without a front end plate attached in Mexico, it has further fueled my suspicion that losing the tall end plates may not be nearly as much of a penalty as in years past, if it's a penalty at all. With the end plates designed specifically to prevent outwash, is there a possibility that losing a small amount of downforce from the front wing might be more than gained from the front of the floor? And as a follow-up question, do you think teams have perhaps designed end plates that might jettison a little easier and even simulated the aero impact of a lost end plate? Keep up the great work. It's an interesting question, isn't it, Gary? Because the rules have sort of changed to make it easier to retain the end plate parts. But then, of course, in Mexico, while Ferrari were discussing whether they needed to bring Leclerc in, the bit of end plate fell off anyway, so they could uh, they could carry on. So, yeah, interesting question. Well, Malcolm, I'm, I'm glad you enjoy the, um, the the podcast. We do try as hard as possible to to bring you some inside facts. Um, right, the end plate on a current Formula 1 car... Um, has really very little to do with the downforce it produces. To be honest, it's probably a negative um, in the fact that it's it's trying to stop the outwash. And that's why a lot of teams put a lot of effort into how the, the flaps join into that that end plate. And that's also why, you know, there's no downforce being produced by the flaps just in front of the tyre outboard there because it's a, it's a waste of time. You can't get the outwash there because of the way the end plate is and, and the height it needs to be. And that's all in the regulations. So from my point of view, the minute an end plate falls off the car or gets damaged and comes off the car, the car's illegal. Because it is one of the things that I think very it would be very, very um, easy to create more downforce from the car, more front downforce from the car with a, I'm not saying no end plate, but a revised end plate. And to be honest, again, you could probably create more downforce from the front of the car with no end plate. Or, no, sorry, you could create more downforce from the, the car by no end plate by revising how you work the outboard ends of the wing and generating outwash. But that's not what Formula 1 wanted. They wanted to contain that, that outwash. And that's why the end plates are the size they are. The shape they are in front of the tyre, everything's there to stop, to reduce the outwash as best possible. So... At the end of the day, you've got to um, recognise what's what's a compliant car and what isn't a compliant car. Um, and from my point of view, there are certain areas on the car that, that make it compliant, and one of them is the front-wing end plate. And I think that if a car loses a front-wing end plate or damages a front-wing end plate, it should be immediately black flagged or whether there's black and orange flag to see you've got to come in and change it within you know two laps or whatever three laps um, and it's quite simple because uh, again you know the car will be lighter without a lot of these bits on it and if they do not generate downforce if they're there for a specific reason then you should have to change it immediately so I think the um, the regulations in so many areas at the moment need to be looked at quite dramatically for next year and hopefully over the winter we'll get time to actually uh, start from the beginning and write a plan on my proposals that I would do for many, many other regulations because they're so, they're so disappointing that they're not police. We see things visually on TV, and we, you know we see stuff, and you think, why is that not getting some sort of a reaction? I'm not saying a penalty, but some sort of reaction, and you, and so often it doesn't, 
there is no reaction to it. And again, as I say, the end plates is part, from my point of view, it's not just the fact the thing hanging off for a while is dangerous and it could hit somebody on the head or go into the crowd or hit a marshal or whatever. But that's, that's, you know, that's, that's one level. But then once it does come off, as I say, if the data that the FIA have from their analysis with the car, they know why that end plate was made like it is and the shape it was made like it because it's defined very well. And they know if it's a performant product or not. And uh, if, it, if the car is more performant without it, which I think it will be, then the car is obviously running illegally. So I think the regulations need to be adhered to a bit more. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting one because they've kind of put the responsibility on the teams to bring cars in for changes if the parts aren't structurally sound and they could penalise you if they're not. But yeah, it's got a little bit messy in, in that regard as to exactly whose job it is, etc. So yeah, I'm sure there'll be more disputes about that. Fortunately, the Clerk situation in uh, Mexico sorted itself out. So thanks very much for the questions. And remember, you can send your questions to podcasts at therace.com. That's podcasts at the-race.com. You can also leave us a voice recording as well if you prefer for that, and then we can play that in the show. All that's left to say is thanks very much to Gary for your excellent insight as normal. It's been a really interesting episode. We'll be back in a few weeks after the Las Vegas Grand Prix and ahead of the season finale for more tech chat. So join us then for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.